This is Hacker Public Radio, episode 3739, for Thursday, the 1st of December 2022. Today's show is entitled Multipactors for the Masses. It is hosted by one of Spoons and is about 26 minutes long. It carries an explicit flag. The summary is Seemingly advanced artifacts of one's locale are tangled whims upon exponential inspiration. Hello, Hacker Public Radio. This is One of Spoons. To give my brain a rest, I'm going to channel someone else today. I've been working on a few other shows, but in order to get a show in quickly, I thought I would transcribe an old video manuscript that's been lying around in an old partition somewhere, which impressed me at the time. The audio quality was very bad, and although I'm fairly sure the speaker would not mind if I passed on his lecture in its entirety, thought it might be more straightforward to transcribe verbally his talk, easier than getting my head around composing, editing my own show. I did transcribe that audio in my noisy server room because it was warm and comfortable in there and that's where the video was. I did apply Audacity noise reduction which took care of the six or eight hairdryer noises coming from my server but bear in mind my voice still sounds like I'm talking over something but it's not too bad. I did cut out about 10 minutes at the beginning, which is a potted history of nuclear power, fission power stations and their problems, and then moving into tokamak research. A tokamak, I think, is a Russian word for a magnetic bottle. On the whole, I do trust this fellow to get his numbers correct. I did check a few of them because they sounded large, very large. He has been known to make a joke, but I don't think this is a joke. At least not in the regular definition of a joke. The speaker was Robert Murray Smith and his subject was a table-sized fusion power generator. So enough of me already, here is the story. In order to get a nuclear reaction to happen, what you need to do is get enough of the reactants together at the sufficient density and you need to direct them towards each other at the correct angle and with sufficient force. Because the nucleus has a force of repulsion due to positive nuclear forces. Protons having a positive electric force and neutrons being neutral. The electrons are not in the nucleus, they're around it and they have those negative charges. So the nucleuses will only get so close before they'll repel each other. The simplest example being two protons, two hydrogen atom ions, like without their electrons. An ion is a charged particle, and its charge will be the difference between its positive and negative charges. That repulsion is called the Coulomb force. In order to get our two protons to fuse together to form helium, we need to overcome the Coulomb force. When that force has been overcome, then the Protons will be fused together and held together by nuclear forces. You will need a fairly direct hit. If you direct particles off-centre, then they will deflect, and that's the difficult part. There is a formula. You need the density of each reactive species, 
and then sigma f, which is the cross-sectional area, and we factor in the velocity of the collision. The product of all of those factors is the likelihood of the reaction occurring, like the, uh, the ability of the reaction to occur. So to illustrate the formula a bit, we have reactive species, we've got particles, we've got the density, like how many you can get in in the smallest space or within the, the space over which you have any influence. And then you have the velocity, velocity being a vectored speed, that speed with direction. The tokamak approach seeks to increase the velocity of the particles by heating them up, giving them energy by heating, which is apparently a very energy intensive way of increasing velocity. And bear in mind, these particles are charged particles. So we do have ways of accelerating them, which we've known about and used for many years. For example, if we populate a space with charged particles and then introduce a plate of material to which we apply a voltage, then those charged particles will accelerate towards the plate. And the velocity of the particles will be related to the voltage. Now, let us relate temperature to velocity of a charged particle. This is interesting. An electron volt is the speed of an electron towards a charged plate at the voltage of one volt. One electron volt. It is likely you're familiar with the unit of the Kelvin, which is a unit of thermal energy equivalent to a unit of uh, one Celsius degree although those scales have their zeros at different points. So roughly minus 273 Celsius would be zero Kelvins, and also zero Rankine degrees, which I hadn't heard of before. One Rankine degree being equivalent to a Fahrenheit degree, and Rankine starts at absolute zero and goes upwards in degrees Rankine. I'll be using Kelvins, and one Kelvin is equivalent to 11,600 electron volts. To illustrate this, if you are familiar with a cathode ray tube, the old television screens, the particles, the electrons which would be hitting the inside screen of your old television would have an equivalent temperature of about 200 million Kelvins due to the velocity at which they were traveling. So millions of degrees Kelvin are possible if you express them as velocity. Remember electron volts. To enumerate our example, 4,200 kilovolts, so 4.2 million volts, megavolts, will give us this 200 million kelvins. Previous century, an inventor named Philo Taylor Farnsworth was working on valve diodes. So the valve diode is a vacuum tube with one emitting plate and another plate in there, another charged plate. And this he developed into a multipactor. And from the multipactor was developed the fuser, which was a device to accelerate the particle velocity to fusion velocity. Please now engage your imagination. For the diagram is most simply a metal sphere or a metal cylinder on the outside, which is positively charged and then either a central point within the sphere, which is negatively charged, or imagine a wire passing through the cylinder, which is 
uh, negatively charged with respect to the positive charge of your metal cylinder. Dial up your potential difference to 50,000 kilovolts, so 50 megavolts, which we can do. Then we fire our charged particles, our positive ions, from the outside to the inside to the negatively charged region in our centre. And those charged particles will accelerate into the centre. These charged particles speed into the centre and they will come out the other side a little bit. But then the repulsion from the positively charged outer surface will drive them back towards the negative center to which they are already attracted. So Farnsworth was accelerating charged particles from all directions and many of them into the center where they would aggregate, where they would be confined and tend towards the negative charge in the center. Therefore their density increases greatly as do the chances of collision. You can describe the conditions at the center of this device as a potential well. Apparently Farnsworth did achieve fusion with this device, some amount of fusion. Of course the physical implementation of that device had its limitations, or you could say it expressed its excursion limits, if you recognize that sometimes people are doing things accidentally. Farnsworth implemented a wire grid as the central electrode, if you like, the negatively charged electrode to which were attracted the positive ions. So those positive ions were particles, and they about 2% of the particles would collide with the wire grid, not make it inside through the ginormous holes in the grid. So 2% of the kinetic energy of the positive ions would be dissipated into the wire grid, transformed into heat energy so the wire grid would get very hot. So that 2% of energy was enough to melt the wire grid within a few seconds, such that the energy, the reaction energy inside, was not enough to assume fusion. These devices are called inertial electrostatic confinement devices. I could not make out the names very well, but Hirsch and Meeks were two other people involved in the development of fuses at that time. Think spherical grids again, meshes. So you've got a central mesh, but polarities reversed this time. So a positively charged mesh sphere at the centre, surrounded by some empty space, and then surrounded by a negatively charged mesh. So a grid within a grid and we surround all of this space with a casement, a hard casement to contain our fuel. The fuel in this case was deuterium. Deuterium goes by the alias of heavy hydrogen and is one proton, one neutron and the electron. So ordinary hydrogen is just one proton, one electron. Double the mass, similar electronic charges. So if we've encased our deuterium in this system and we've dialed up the potential difference between the two grids then the positive ions will be attracted to the outer mesh grid allowing the electrons to be attracted to the central positively charged grid electron mass being so much smaller than the mass of protons 
They are more easily controlled in these conditions, more easily contained, relatively easy, of course, relating to the high energies involved in this activity. Apparently what happens here, and I have not witnessed this, is the electrons become packed into the centre of this device and create what is called a virtual cathode. A core of electrons concentrated enough to then attract the positively charged ions which had collected on the outer grid and pull them into the centre and they do their overshooting and then return to centre Cayley style traversal while apparently not neutralising themselves. So the result is a cloud of electrons at the centre but then a densely populated area of protons or I should say positively charged ions because the neutrons are in there as well just adding density. Apparently fusion does occur within this central core of deuterium nuclei, nucleuses. This is on the record as reproducible. You might find some pretty pictures. However, that central grid still absorbs enough energy for this to be a non-viable device from which we can extract a net energy, net useful energy. So at this point, you might be wondering how you can construct this situation without having a grid at all or having a grid which cannot be hit by the electrons since that's the obstacle. A person called Robert Bussard whom proposed a space engine, the Bussard Ramjet. Bussard created a polywell from a ring of magnets. The simple description given was that the ring of magnets was aligned such that the electrons went around the magnets and were caught in the in the center well so they could not or did not collide with any physical barrier the arrangement was difficult to engineer but Bussard died I don't know how the group which he created progressed the project to WB7 this video manuscript is about 12 years old and I've read in web pages just now that WB8 has been achieved since the American Navy did take over this project. They might have officially dropped it by now. A lot of time has passed and there's a lot more information online about the developments ramifying from that project. Bussard reckoned he could get this working for about $200 million and I did see that number written on a web page. If you take a look at the budgets of some of these Tokamak projects and fusion projects nowadays like Cadarache in France and of course American military budgets you'll see that number is very small relative to what they're spending on other things. So Bussard had combined inertial electrostatic confinement with tokamak technology, the magnetic bottle technology. If you'd like to research that device then search under Rigatron. Rigatron. But Robert Murray Smith at the time was keen on a tangential method. In order to function and work safely, tokamaks need to be surrounded by a lithium blanket. The lithium blanket is about 2 metres thick and reacts with the particles which are produced and escape from the tokamak, producing tritium which is fed back into the reactor. 
tritium is very rare. The tokamak containment magnets were initially placed outside the lithium blanket and Bussard's Rigatron had the magnets within the lithium blanket, which yielded better reaction results. Then Bussard took this further by putting the magnet arrangement inside the inertial electrostatic containment device. Maybe if there's any advice to be derived from this mini-lecture by Robert Murray-Smith, perhaps it is this. When people seem to run into hurdles, big teams of people, uh, huge projects, and they, all over the world, use the same principles, thinking they can overcome these hurdles, then either you think or are hoping that you can overcome these hurdles, or maybe take a couple of steps back to where the path diverged and see what people were working on before they followed the path which appears to be blocked. Because, face it, there are plenty of people trying that already, so maybe there was something close by which escaped the attention of the excited researchers when they made a a mini breakthrough. So Murray Smith went back to Farnsworth's Multipactor. The Multipactor is an electron cascade device. Multipaction is a problem for microwave engineers because it interferes with signals. So they tried to eliminate multipaction. So maybe this is a case of utilising SOD's law. Side note, that might engage the sense of humour of the universe and maybe you'll eke out a few secrets as it chuckles back at you. Engage imagination, not very much imagination. Maybe concentration would be more appropriate because the diagrams are very basic actually and tend to involve the same pluses, minuses, lines, curves, straight bits. Imagine a plate of material from which you can emit electrons. You can shoot off electrons and those electrons you aim at another plate of material. If you choose appropriate materials these electrons will be deflected back but will at the same time produce more electrons from the second surface which will also scatter away in the general direction of your initial plate, your emitting plate. This is the cascade and those electrons can cause yet more electrons to be emitted from whichever plate they collide with. Then you can direct all of these or contain all of these cascading electrons with either magnetic field or an electromagnetic field or electrostatic field. If you shape your emitting plates and bouncing plates into some kind of parabolic mirror, then you can imagine a situation where you have fewer electrons to catch because most of them are bouncing towards another plate anyway. Apparently this multipactor device of Farnsworth's would build up such an amount of electrons so quickly that his laboratory would start to shake and his device would glow bright blue, which is the point when you know you're onto something. So he did what any level-headed scientist would do, and he dug a 30-foot well, into which he could lower his multipactor device and switch it on until the place was shaking too much. So this multipactor was a physical device. These parabolic mirrors are contained in a vacuum tube. The electron flight time between the parabolic mirrors is specific. Therefore, if you know the distance between the parabolic mirrors and the speed of the electron and you divide the distance by the speed, 
Then you've got the time it takes to traverse, to travel the gap. Then you can play at reversing the polarity of the mirror plates such that the polarity of the mirror that your electrons are travelling towards is reversed and you come back off that plate and then reverse the other plate before the electrons get there. That kind of a situation. Your brain might be recognising the scene here. What happens if we switch the plates more quickly than the electrons can reach the other side? So you switch the plates faster and faster. The electrons which were travelling to the other side, in whichever direction they were travelling, then switch to go back before they reach the mirror. And then eventually you can imagine they'll be going backwards and forwards in the centre of the device, like in the space between the parabolic mirrors. Some kind of little ball of electrons there. For good measure, we can include an electromagnetic field around the device in the perpendicular plane to help form that ball of electrons. So you can switch on your device in cascade mode, generate a whole bunch of electrons just bouncing around, cascading from the plates, making more electrons shoot out because they've been energised such. And then switch on your plates to oscillate such that the electrons fly backwards and forwards and then don't have time to reach the other side and then have less and less time to travel any further so they find themselves in the middle of your the space in your device and then you can put the squeeze on them with your electric magnet to um, push those electrons even closer together. The difference between this device and the devices we first described is the lack of any grid in the middle. We're not attracting the particles using a central grid, but we have got a ball of electrons which can now act as a virtual cathode. So we just need to introduce some ions so we can shoot those into the middle of the ball of electrons in the usual way. You can heat up some emitter and positive ions, so particles with positive charge, no electron, but physical matter will be emitted and also attracted to this ball of electrons. This is a situation which has been shown to produce fusion, to uh, generate the conditions under which fusion does occur. And Robert Murray Smith is standing in front of a squeaky whiteboard in a very echoey room in the distant past, telling me, <laughs> distant this century, telling me that this device works better on a smaller scale, like your kitchen table kind of a scale. Maybe even the size of an old incandescent light bulb. And the energy inputs are not prohibitive. They're not too great. What about the tritium? Very expensive. Even deuterium, not on the shelf at my supermarket. Well, those are chosen because they're very light, so you can accelerate them at greater speeds with energies which are not prohibitive. So the higher the density of something, the higher the mass rather, then the more energy you need to give it to get it up to speed, up to uh, fusion speed, if that's the method you're using. But Maurice Smith is suggesting boron-11, which is on the shelf in the borax. Boron-11 is about 80% of boron on the planet. It's a stable isotope. In seawater, about 0.005% 
So multiply that by the ocean or pick up a box of borax. Useful for other things. If you collide a proton with boron 11, proton being the hydrogen ion, then you'll get carbon 12 and three alpha particles. Which does sound a bit alchemical, but at school I mostly thought it was only the transuranic elements that would be splitting into things, you know, or making different elements. Of those three alpha particles, one is high energy alpha, and the other two are mixed energy alpha particles. You will also generate some X rays, so have your lead foil standing by. Don't keep it with the aluminium foil, it's a different kind of poisonous, and if you know where I can get some tin foil, I'd be very interested, because I don't see that in the supermarket either. The high energy alpha particle has a specific speed, specific energy. Now, were these high-energy alpha particles to collide with a metal plate, then they will absorb two electrons. We can make the side walls of our container from this metal, and therefore have a high-voltage current flow through outer surface of our vessel. No steam involved, no heating element, no turbine, just an electrical charge on the container vessel. In case you missed the memo, an alpha particle is the nucleus of a helium atom. So once the alpha particle has picked up its electrons from the metal wall, it becomes a low energy helium atom. The helium atom is not radioactive, so the reaction products of this boron-proton reaction are helium and x-rays and carbon-12, common carbon. It is possible to substitute lithium for your boron. You'll notice those recipes listed if you go searching. So this device is relatively safe compared to fission nuclear power stations, which produce tons of nuclear waste. Even the fusion generators have their radioactive products. They're nowhere near as long-lived as the from the fission power stations, but we're still talking generations of humans. At the time, Robert Murray Smith made that video, he was quite happy for people to contact him to join in a collaboration. He didn't think he could make this thing by himself. And if you look at his other work, he's obviously got a lot of parallel projects, many of them very accessible to the hacker and maker crowd. This old video was at least 10 years old, and I'm sure people have worked on this kind of a project. I've had a quick look and I've noticed old web pages describing a similar kind of thing. I didn't check the details yet, but you could if you were interested. My show notes might include some English words which you can search upon. Maybe one day I'll give you some nice show notes, but I still have dreams about struggling to finish my homework. Choose well, folks. Don't get electrocuted and don't spend too much time beside ginormous radio transmitters. been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR has been kindly provided by anhonesthost.com, the Internet Archive and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.